Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Be able to take your opening bit and your closing bit and be able to throw that away and then make your whole act an opening and closing bit where you're like one chunk after another. It's gush, it's gush. And never, ever, ever rest on your laurels. You go up and that chunk is the greatest chunk ever. You go home and you're thinking at night, how do I make it better? How do I make it funnier? What can I do to make it more animated? How can I put a tag onto it? Get other people around you. Get other comedians to help write stuff for you. Don't think you can do it like have do all those things right all right welcome to another episode of industry standard with me barry Katz. as usual what i like to do with the cold open is i like to do something that sort of relates in some way of six degrees of separation to my guest or the world that they're in or whatever is in my guest today. I'm very excited about who we're going to talk to in just a little bit is Jeff Aploff, who's an amazing, amazing reality uh, producer and creator. And I've only had only one other person in this world on the show, Brant Pindavidic. Uh, who's the president of iWorks now, and I, I find this world very fascinating, and I'm sure you guys too, seeing that the number one show on television is about several men who look like they're ex-Red Sox players from the World Championship Duck Dynasty. So anyway, my story is, it starts off this way. Um, one of the things when I was representing Dane Cook, and I, I worked with him for about 17 years that was really important and and one of his goals that was very elusive and it was a very elusive goal for frankly i think every comedian was to figure out a way how we could get him on a finale of american idol because if you get on a finale of american idol i'm you're in front of probably like 30 million people and if you can make your mark it's groundbreaking, not just on how you look, your style, your content, what you decide to do. It's just a unique stage that can, can launch things even bigger than what they already are. And 
I remember Dane's uh, agent at the time was a guy named Steve Smook from CAA, Creative Artist Agency. And Steve is a guy and was a guy who is one of the, in my opinion, one of the most underrated but extraordinary agents out there in the sense that he works in all areas of the business. He has worked for clients in film. He's worked for clients in scripted television. He's worked with comedians. He's worked with actors. And he always is, seems to be in a place where he can uh, get things done in an unusual and unique way that you want to get done. And I, I worked with him on several deals, not only with Dane, but several other clients. And I was always uh, really, really happy with the working relationship and always really uh, a lot of fun and uh, just a, a unique guy to see how he works and his relationships. A guy who, you know, has pissed a lot of people off in the business, but somehow, some way, even after he really upset somebody, he would figure out a way to create a better relationship. So he represented, I believe, Simon Fuller from um, American Idol. And uh, and he had a little bit of an in there. And we were able to get the idea into the right people and figure out uh, how to get Dane Cook on. And they agreed to put him on. If he could figure out some kind of a unique, funny angle or tribute to uh, get something done there. Um, and so he got the gig. So he says to me, uh, Barry, this is very exciting. Uh, I don't exactly know what I'm going to do. I said, I have an idea. Why don't I put together a like think tank of writers for just one two-hour period in a conference room, and you can come in, and I'll tell everybody in advance, and they can pitch you an idea of what to do. And I might preface, this story is unique in the sense that it has a lot of different parts to it of the things in the business that or any business if you're in that you can look at and how things can go a certain way and how they can't and adversity and what it takes to move to the next level and what can happen when you get to the next level and all sort of different things having to do with relationships. So I put together this room of people and I, I, I wanted to put 10 people in the room with Dane and I had nine people that I put in there who were young writers or special people that I knew throughout the business, not necessarily my clients at all. And two weeks beforehand, I had met with this guy who was very persistent, who was probably, you know, closer to 40 than he was 30. And he was kind of a unique looking guy. And he was a guy who, when I met with him after he was so persistent, there was something about him that was special, but he, he was kind of like a little socially awkward in the me meeting, a little bit, just didn't have the oomph. But I knew there was something about him, but I just couldn't figure out what it was. And I just, I, I didn't pull the trigger. And it was getting towards uh, when this meeting was, and I still only had nine people. And so I decided, you know what, why don't I just have that guy come in again? Because he kept emailing me and kept calling me. Can I come in? Can I see you again? Whatever. 
and I had him come in again. And I just decided, you know, what the hell? You know, my instincts tell me this guy is going to make his mark. But in the room, for some reason, my instincts aren't showing me that. So I said, listen, if you're not busy, I'd love you to come into the stink tank with, with Dane Cook. And the comedian's name uh, is a very funny comedian who has since done The Tonight Show and, and just did the Arsidio Hall show, a guy named J. Chris Newberg, who is a stand-up, has great material, but also uses a guitar to kind of enhance the jokes, uh, and really an interesting character. So we uh, have the seats at the head of the table, and... Dane and I are meeting and talking, and um, as usual, what no artist knows the fate of the room or how it's going to be. But there happen to be three chairs at the around that part of the table. Everybody had taken their chair. I guess they knew I was sitting in a certain place, so somebody was sitting next to me. I guess my bag was there. But it wasn't clear where Dane was, but he was going to be right at the top, and that chair next to him was empty. Because presumably, because the comedians at the time were intimidated and they and the writers and they didn't know what they were going to do or what, the, so they just wanted to sort of step back. But this kid, Jay Chris Newberg, he sits right down in that chair, right next to Dane Cook, and he's got his guitar on the floor. And as usual, when you're in a room, just to digress a second. You don't know which way you're going to go, how things are going to be pitched, but you naturally assume if you're going to be next to the guy, chances are you might be first. When Jay Moore got his first job on Saturday Night Live, his first table read was, it wasn't a table read, it was a pitch meeting, the first meeting where everybody's around the table at SNL. And Jay decided, he says, look, you know, if I sit on this side right next to Lorne and the guest or whatever, whoever it was on the other side, he, he picked a place on the other side of Lorne and he said, I want to be right next to Lorne because I know I got the best idea in the world, which was Barney versus Barkley, which happened to be the cold open that actually was on SNL his first year, his first show. It was Barkley doing one-on-one -on -one with Barney and beating the crap out of him. Anyway, so Jay sat next to Lorne hoping that he could be the first guy to get picked. Unbelievably, Lorne went the other way. So 50 people pitched their ideas before Jay, and everybody that pitched, there was this anxiety. God, are they going to come up with it? Are they going to come up with my idea or whatever? Until finally he came and pitched his idea, and it got on. So similarly, Jay Newberg, Jay Chris Newberg, sat in that chair. He was confident, yet when you looked at him, you just weren't sure what to think. And all these other seasoned writers who'd written on all these different things written for comedians were there. And so sure enough, Dane Cook says, well, let's start with you. And Newberg picks up the guitar and he says, you know, I was thinking about things last night. A great idea might be that um, we do a little roast of Simon. And, you know, I wrote a little ditty about um, what it would be like. And he picks up his guitar and he says, this song is called Simon Says. 
and he starts singing this song with these incredible jokes and stopping the guitar rift and all these roast jokes. And then he finished off with the chorus and he said, everybody, and people in the room, the writers in the room were singing along the chorus. <laughs> and he finished, he, and he put down his guitar and everyone in the room applauded like, 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 like it gave him an ovation in this conference room. And you, after he finished and put down the, uh, the guitar, Dane was like, wow, that's pretty impressive for writing last night. He's like, he's like thank you. And I realized the look on all the writers' faces in the room was like, holy shit, I got nothing. I got nothing that is going to compare to that. I can't follow that. I'm fucked. And the next guy that he called, hey, what do you got? He's like, um, listen, could you just go to the next guy? <laughs> and went to the next guy. Uh, listen, I just, uh, I'm thinking about a few things. You the next guy. And so it was like back and forth and nothing that they came up with was anything remotely positive for that thing. And Newberg got the gig writing this song for Dane Cook. And so we went, uh, he recorded it, wrote a few things, pitched it to American Idol. They loved it. They said, this is great, love it, fantastic. And so Newberg gets his break, starts forming a relationship with Dane Cook, a young guy who came from nowhere with all these established writers. Dane Cook gets his break on the biggest show in reality television to the first comedian that I know of ever to be able to do a set on a finale of American Idol, which was a first, and he loved firsts. Those were his goals. And everything is fantastic and exciting. And then we get to the American Idol live taping, and I get there a little bit early, and one of the things that I, I was amazed about is that there was a rehearsal during the day, and Ryan Seacrest was nowhere to be found. Here is the largest, biggest host in network television. It's a live show, and somebody who's like a male model is running through his lines. I'm like, how is it possible that this guy is, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm waiting, I keep going back and forth, not there. I go back to the trailer, knock on the trailer door, the producers of American Idol come in, and they say, Dane, um, I don't think we're uh, we're gonna be able to do this uh, this uh, show. It was early. It was very early. I don't think we're gonna be able to do this. Uh, I don't think it's gonna happen. And we, it's gotta happen. You made a commitment. So Steve and I were fighting back and forth throughout the rehearsals with the producers. You gotta have him on. You can't take it away from him. You committed. You cannot do this to him. And they're like, we're sorry, it's just not going to work out. So all through the day, we're fighting with them, fighting back and forth. What is it? Oh, it's a time issue. We don't think we can do the time, whatever it is. I'm, listen, you have to make this happen. So Steve and I were, you know, part of being a manager and being an agent is turning no's into yeses. Here is Dane's biggest break. He's gone to a stylist. He has a whole outfit he's picked out. He's worked for hours and hours and hours on this thing. He's gone into rehearsals with the band, and he's got his two minutes and 15 seconds or whatever. So then they come back in, and they say, listen, uh, can you do it in a minute? 
and he's in the trailer. He's like saying, you know, he said, give me a, give me, give me 15 minutes. We're working on it with Newberg. He tries double time. Now, for those of you not in music, which I wasn't, double time just means you're doing it twice as fast, but you're doing all the, all the words the same way. It's just twice as fast. They bring in the American Idol producers. They show it to them. They close the trailer door. Listen, I don't think this is going to happen. I don't like it that way. Listen, what if we just do a one and a half minute version or whatever? We'll figure it out. We'll edit something. We'll do it. We went back in the trailer. We're working on it. He does that version. And they say, okay. And so we fought for it. We got on. It wasn't exactly what he wanted, but it was a moment that he would have. And whether it was less time or not, it would be a big break and 30 million people would be watching it. So then the American Idol producers informed us that they came up with the brilliant idea. Listen, uh, guys, what's going to happen at the very end of the song, we're going to bring out all the rejects that Simon has shit on throughout the years or the year, and we're going to bring them out and clap and applaud, and there's going to be three or four on either side of you, Dane, when you finish. And I'm like, well, this this doesn't seem like a good idea. And he was, and the producers basically yelled at me. They said, "Listen, you know, basically, listen, motherfucker, you're lucky he's on the show. Uh, we we almost took him off the show. This is what it is. And it just to me, the variables again, no matter how big you are as an artist, if you're taking a gig with somebody else, you lose control." You don't have the control because at any moment, anything can happen, especially in reality television. And here this guy had worked so hard and gotten it together. We'd got the gig and then lost it, got it, lost it, fought to get it, and now there's another variable that he has to worry about. But Newberg is working with him, helping him, giving him confidence, and really special. And Dane starts and gets introduced on stage and starts, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's slow, it's paced, it's beautiful, it's getting big laughs. Simon is laughing, Randy's laughing, you know, Ellen, all the people are laughing, it's going over well. And at the end of his final chorus, as he's trying to finish off the final chorus and he's playing guitar, you see uh, three or four of these uh, rejects from American Idol coming over and applauding and slapping their hands and dancing over the head as they come on either side of him. And then he starts with his final chorus. And one of those guys who was rejected by Simon, Ian Bernardo, rips the mic out of the mic stand, which they hadn't secured or thought of, and started saying, Simon, you're shit. I'm better than you, whatever. And it's a live show. And Dane is just standing there in the background, strumming the guitar with this look on his face like, this motherfucker took my moment away from me. I had it all going on. I worked so hard, and it's gone. And as in live television, they zoomed out, turned to a different sidewall of a logo, faded out, and there was no outro of Dane Cook. There was no mention of it again. And an opportunity, which seemingly was the greatest opportunity in the world, was tainted 
and lost for an artist that really wanted something special to boost his career. And on the flip side, though, the young artist, J. Chris Newberg, it was a defining moment in his career. He had shown that he could prove that he could be a great writer. He could prove that he could create holy shit moments. He proved that he could create original content. And he made Dane feel safe. And ultimately, because of that, Dane booked him on his multi-city arena tour as his opening act and then brought him on at the end of every show to orchestrate the encore. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and Seaman. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. So tell me how Don't Forget Your Lyrics goes. Because this, this is what I remember about this. And those of you who remember five years ago, NBC and Fox were rushing to get out a singing competition show. Right. Both of them knew they were developing something. Both of them knew things were going forward. And when it was announced, if I'm not mistaken, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, when Don't Forget Your Lyrics was going to go on the air at a certain point of time, NBC, who, by the way, at the time was uh, was uh, being run the reality division by your dear friend Jeff Gaspin, <laughs> it he, was... he decided to fast-track a show that he had and pick it up for, I believe, I don't know how many episodes, an enormous amount of episodes, but picked it up and fast-tracked it so it would launch, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, two weeks or a month before Don't Forget Your Lyrics, and that was called The Singing Bee. Right. The Singing Bee goes on two weeks or a month before Don't Forget the Lyrics, and it kills it's the first episode literally is like 20 to 25 million people the second episode kills not as well but about 20 million nbc in a preemptive move to try to scare or shake or however it was fox and don't forget the lyrics because there was this big competitive thing because there was a situation with another show called the contender mm -hmm which both NBC and Fox got in a big argument about, and Fox trumped them and brought that out earlier and really stuck at the NBC. So NBC, which is an untold story, and they probably would never admit it, wanted to figure out a way to derail your show. And so what they did was they announced that they were picking up Singing Bee for an unprecedented 26 episodes or 24 episodes for the rest of, after two airings. But then a little something happened <laughs> on the way to uh, success and celebration. Your show launched. 
Now take us through what you were going through when NBC was doing all this stuff and what you were feeling and what you were hearing from Fox and how well, I, I, in order to do that I have to take you back a little bit. Please so I'll take, take it, me I'll way take back. You, I'll take you back a little bit. I love so it. So what ends up happening and I won't even tell you the whole story leading up to lyrics because it's a crazy story. Why but, not? That's why we're here. So here's what happens. You don't understand. Here, here's this what, is what this is all about. Here's the inspirational what story. So so Greg is working at ABC, okay? And I pitch a show to ABC with him and Andrea Wong and they want to do it. They tell me, hey, you got to find this production company. We need a production company to back you up because you don't have the experience. I say, okay, we'll go find a big production company. They have me meet with three or four. I don't like any of them, okay? So I go meet with a guy named Chris Colin, who was the former head of UTA and he had just taken over RDF, which is a big production company out of the UK. And he represented... Gay Rosenthal, who I had done business with before. So he had already sold two shows for me, and I didn't even really know the guy, right? I figured, let me go pitch him this show. I go and I pitch him the show, and he's like, we're going to do it. So I call Greg Goldman at ABC, and I say, hey, just so he goes, I got another. I call him up, and he answers his phone, and I go, I got another production. I got a production company I want you to meet. He goes, no, I have a new production company for you. I go, no, I already got the production company. He goes, it doesn't work that way, Jeff. We're the network. You got to let us tell you. And I said, listen, I have a guy that I trust. I have a guy that I like. He's going to give me the deal that I want. I already have the deal cleared. You should at least meet him. And I, he goes, who is it? And I said, it's Chris Colin over at RDF. And he goes, let me call you right back on your cell phone. And I hang up the phone with him. And this is where the story is going to get really interesting, and ladies and gentlemen. Me, and he calls me back. He calls me back on my cell phone and he goes, <laughs> are you serious about the Chris Cohen thing? And I said, yeah. He goes, what do you know? And I go, what do you mean? What do I know? I, 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 what are you talking about? And he goes, okay, listen, I'm leaving ABC and I'm becoming, I'm becoming the executive vice president over at RDF. And I go, you're going to let me do this deal with ABC and you're not even in it? What are you talking about? Like, we got to be together on this thing. And he goes, listen, you can't say anything, but that's what's going down. And that deal happens. I end up doing, I end up pitching a ton of shows to Greg over at RDF because we're close. And so, so they have option like five shows for me. Now I create a different show, not Don't Forget the Lyrics, but a different show, which was really a great show. My agent at the time said to me, which now it's William Morris, at the time it was a different agent, and the agent said to me, listen, you cannot do anything else with RDF. I don't want you to do anything with RDF because we have five shows option. They haven't sold anything. Let's go meet with Mark Burnett. Let's go meet with Endemol. Let's go meet with Fremantle. Let's go meet with ITV. Let's meet with some other people and see what it is. And I said, okay. I create this show. He sets me up with four meetings in one day. One of the shows was Reveille. I mean, one of the production companies was Reveille, who's done which was big. run, Which was run at the time by Ben Silverman, who became the president of NBC for about a year or so. And Howard Owens, who is now yeah. running National Geographic, and great guys, right? So I go into the very first pitch meeting with this show, and the next day, or that day later on, I had Mark Burnett and all these other people to meet with to pitch this show. And I go and I pitch... This other show and Howard Owens at Reveille goes, I got to have this show. I love it. I got to have it. You can't take it anywhere else. I go, well, I've got pitch meetings set up after this. I got to go pitch it. He goes, no, you got to keep it, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to take care of this. You just go back and do your thing. I mean, you can't go. So I leave the meeting. I walk outside. I pick up my phone. I call my agent and I go, hey, we got a problem here. Howard Owens doesn't want me to take this. He goes, I know. He called me already. We can't take it anywhere. I go, how could he call you that? I just walked out of his office. <laughs> he goes, he called me. 
He goes, listen, we don't want to make enemies with Reveille. These guys have an in at NBC. They're really big. These guys are strong. You don't want to screw them over. We can, we're going to do the deal with them. And I go, but I want to go to Mark Burnett, and I want to go do all these other things. He goes, it was actually that the meetings were the next day at Mark Burnett and stuff. And I said, I really want to go to Mark Burnett. He goes, well, I'm going to cancel the meetings. I said, don't cancel it. I'm going to come up with something. Don't cancel it. I had read Bernie Brillstein's book. So Bernie Brillstein talks about creating um, Hee Haw. And he created Hee Haw by melding together. He had 3 o'clock in the morning. He woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and melded um, – um, what's the show that I'm thinking of? Oh, my God. Um, Laughin. Laughin along with whatever that great Southern show that was on. I'm trying to think um, – Green Acres. Green Acres, right? <laughs> Took the two together and said, let me make a country version. Sorry, sorry. I am let so me make old. A, let me make a country version of those two things and made that show. So I said to myself, what are the two biggest shows on TV right now? At the time, it was Deal or No Deal, and it was American Idol. And I said, let me make a show between these two shows. And the Deal or No Deal model didn't work, but the model of you know Millionaire worked. And I ended up making this lyric show, and that's how I created Don't Forget the Lyrics. And that's exactly how it happened. Unbelievable. But, but, and so the production company that was involved in that did. So you, here's what happened with that. So, so you I pitch decide, it to, you go to Mark Burnett and a bunch of people. I go to Mark Burnett and I go to Endemol. I pitch it to both, and I have a lunch the next day with Greg Goldman right at the Ivy. So we go, okay. I go and I meet with Greg Goldman and I walk in the door. And I sit down and he looks at me and he goes, what's going on? And I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you look like the cat that ate the canary. I go, I created something really spectacular. I spent the whole night last night creating it and I feel like it's a big winner. He goes, what is it? And I said, I, I can't tell you. And he goes, what do you mean you can't tell me? And I go, I can't tell you because I can't sell it to you and you're going to want it and I can't give it to you because I have five shows with you and my agent says I can't give it to you. He goes, dude, it's me. What are you talking about? Like, tell me what the show is. And I said, Greg, I can't tell you the show because you're going to want it. He goes, I won't ask for I'll help you bid it up because other people had wanted to do it. And I said, I would never do that, but I'll tell you the show, but you can't ask me. So I told him what the show is. And he goes, oh, my God, I love it. I love it. I love it. That night I went home and I thought about it. I thought about it. I thought about it. And I said, you know, if I go make a deal with Burnett or if I make a deal with Endemol, it's going to take me a month to get that deal done before anything. I really love this show. I want to get it out. So I called up Greg and I said, hey, you want this show? And he goes, oh, my God, I can't tell you how bad. I said, okay, here's the deal. I am going to email you right now the structure of the deal that I want. And just to break in, these deals, when you option a reality show to a company, these companies, like, they squeeze you. They do anything they can. You'll get, like, an option deal that sometimes it's very common if you're an artist and you create a reality show. They'll do, like, what's called a shopping option agreement where they, they have the rights to have your show or your concept for six months, sometimes a year, and you look at it, there's no, a lot of times they don't give you any money up front. And then they give you, they show you the percentages of what you're going to make. And, and they don't show you the executive producer fees you're going to make because the budgets haven't been made yet. They don't tell you normally that you're going to make a huge percentage of that. They don't tell you what your episodic fee is going to be. Sometimes they'll guarantee your credit. Sometimes they'll try to squeeze you down to co-executive producer credit and not executive producer credit. And then you'll look at the back end, which is in success, 
And you'll see a number that sometimes, believe it or not, is between 2.5% and and 5% or 10% when you do your first deal and you're like, wait a second, I created the show, I brought you the show, I gave you the show, and what you're telling, and you're getting the physical production through the show, which means that if the show costs a million dollars an episode, guaranteed on a bad day, you're making $300,000 profit. That's on a bad day with your line items from editing bays to graphics to everything else with all your people you have on salary. So I'm handing you a minimum of 300000 maybe as much as 500000 plus the underages that if you go under budget that you don't show, that you pad the budget, that you don't show the network and you squeeze into your pocket. And now in success, for every $100, you're saying that I'm only going to make 10 or $5 and you're going to make $95. So even when you've experienced success like Jeff did and getting things going and doing what it's going, your goal as a creator is to get a deal with a production company that gives you 50% of the profits and 50% of the executive producer fees at best. But the problem is... To get that, normally you have to have had a show that was a huge hit. And even if you have a show that was a huge hit, the chances of you getting a 50-50 deal, like somebody, let's say, like Peter Engel had grandfathered in his deal. Peter Engel had a deal where he was 50% of the gross. He actually made more money than the network because they had to pay the expenses and everything like that. So when you were doing this deal for Don't Forget the Lyrics, by the way, was it called that, the initial name? No, the initial name was called Off the Charts. Off the Charts. And then it was called Jukebox Hero, and then it became Don't Forget the Lyrics. Yeah. So this deal that you're making with Greg, he has to do it. My guess is he's never done a 50-50 deal there in his life. So how did you get the best possible deal, and what was your number in your head that you said... I'll do this deal for because I doubt they were going to be 50-50 partners with you on everything, which shocked me. Well, so there's a lot of different ways that a deal is done, but even more important is they could have said 50%, but the way this business works is depending on how the language is written, you may never see that 50% or it doesn't make a difference what the number is if you ever see it. So there's a lot of people that have back-end deals that never see a penny because the language isn't written properly. So you may make money on this, but it loses money on this and they find a way not to pay you. So my goal was to say, listen, this is the deal that I want, regardless of what the numbers are, but they were very nice. But also I wanted what's called a separate pots deal, meaning if we make money on merchandise and if we make money on the sale, and we make, but we lose money on some Asian market, well, that's a loss and has nothing to do with the other stuff. So I gave him the deal that I wanted that I thought was very, very fair and that I thought could happen if they did it, but they hadn't done a deal like that. Did before. you tell them you've got 24 hours to make this deal, or else I'm going to the other people? What I said to him was, it wasn't even 24 hours. I said, let me know in the morning if this is good for you. If it's good, we're done. If not, let me know. And I said, if there's anything at all that you come to me that you go, unless it's making the deal richer, I'm telling you now, I'm not going to do the deal. The power of no. Nine o'clock in the morning, he called me up and he goes, done. And I said, now, done. He- and by the way, part of the deal was we've got to be out in the next week pitching it. Now, when he said done, did you say to yourself as you hung up the phone, damn it, 
No. You should have asked for more. I didn't. I knew what I asked for was fair and rich for me, and it was good. And what you you want to leave everybody happy in the deal. You don't really want to make it so that that deal doesn't happen. Not everybody so, feels that way. Well, I know. I'm not, uh, you know, I, I, I like to leave a little money on the table. That way everybody still wants to do business with you all the time. And I'm a guy that's, you know, I do a lot of business with a lot of these big production companies. You always try to be fair, but you ask for the right deal. So the way that Don't Forget the Lyrics happens is we put the show together. I put together this whole presentation. I get a fake contestant to come out with us. I get speakers. I get this whole gigantic thing. We're going to go out and pitch it. We go and we pitch it to CBS. We pitch the show. We walk into NBC to pitch the show, walk in the door. We set up. It takes me 30 minutes to set up. I do this whole gigantic thing. The executive that came in was about 40 minutes late. Who was that executive? I'm trying to remember his first name, and he did. Craig Plestis? Craig Plestis. So, and Craig was also my executive on, um, on the show that I sold initially. He worked directly under... Jeff Gaspin. So I knew I knew Craig's. We, Craig walked in the door, and he looked at uh, Chris Colin, who had just started RDF, right, and said, "I want to do a show with you." And he looked at me and he goes, "I want to do a show with you." So I'm excited to see the show today. And we said, "Fantastic!" And I stood up and I said, "Let me tell you what the show is." And I didn't get through the first paragraph. And he goes, "Hold it! Stop! Are you telling me this is a game show?" Yes. And I said, "Yes." And he goes, "And about." knowing the lyrics of popular songs? And I said, yes. And he goes, I greenlit a show yesterday. Now, Barry, I can't tell you, sometimes you create something and you go, this is it. This is my ticket. This is the show. It's so original. It's so hard to come up with something original. So when you haven't seen anything like it and it's not American Idol, it's not what's on the air, but yet it's singing and it's lyrics and it's stuff that I know really well. And my heart drops. And he goes, don't say another word, pack it up. I'm good. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So I wait outside. Chris and the team had other business to talk to him about. They walked outside and I said, listen to me. We have to be at the other networks today. You got to make your phone call. We got to be there today. I got to make this happen. Chris got on the phone, made it happen. We went over. We pitched a couple of different networks. And then finally at 6 o'clock that night, we went in to pitch Mike Darnell at Fox. Now this is something that's really amazing. I just want to share with you. Mike Darnell is a guy that, to again, this is something that you made happen that I have no idea. How you, Mike Darnell is a guy that there is no way in hell you are going to call him up the day of and get a meeting with him that day. Even when you have a meeting with him and it's the greatest pitch in the world, you could get there. He could be 40 minutes late, an hour late, an hour and a half late. You could be waiting, and he could be say, look, you know, we've got to reschedule this meeting. He was always famous because American Idol was so huge that he had this, you know, and he was a genius. He had this sense of entitlement that it was like, look, you know, even though I love these people, I, you know, I, I, I can't make it happen, or I'm not going to happen, or I'm going to reschedule. I don't feel it today, or I don't want to stick around. And it was common for many producers out there in the world, including myself, when I pitched to Mike Darnell, you know, one out of three times he'd be there and he'd be there at the meeting on the time that it was supposed to be. But the other two out of three times he'd either be late and then you'd say he's not going to make it or else he'd reschedule. So the fact that you got him in the room that day is like, I can't even believe it. It's, it was craziness, and the good thing was, and what Chris did is called him and said, hey, 
NBC, who you know you went to war with with the boxing show, has this show. We have a project. We have a product that's better. We think that you'll love it. And we went in. We pitched it to Mike. And in the room, he saw it. And he said, you know, I think we would have to do this. He made a couple of little tweaks. But then he looked around the room and he goes, okay, you know what I think we're going to do on this? I think we're going to do a pilot. And he looked around the room and he looked at Chris and he goes, pilot? And Chris goes, yeah. And he looks at me, he goes, pilot? Yes. And he looked at Greg, pilot? Greg said, yes. He looks at the fake contestant, he goes, pilot? And the fake contestant goes, yeah. And I go, he's a fake contestant. He can't approve a pilot. Like, you know, what are you talking about? He goes, leave me the boards and stuff. He went upstairs. Next day we got the phone call that he wanted to do the pilot. And so don't forget the lyrics begins. In fact, in the room, he said to me, when can you start? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, when can we start this? I said, Mike, I was in the bagel business and the delicatessen <laughs> business. I woke up every night at midnight. There is nobody in this town that's going to beat me to work. Let's start right now. He goes, how about tomorrow? I go, tomorrow is perfect. Right? <laughs> and so that's how that happened. And then once we started to make the, the pilot and we got together and we did all that, he started to see what the show was. Oh, this, he came to me. I went to him and I said, listen, I haven't done a lot of these shows. I have to be honest with you. I feel like I need an executive producer that's done game shows, that's done music, that's done all of those things. And he said, well, thank you for being honest. I said, I'll take even a little less money. Which is very rare for someone to do because normally they're trying to get as much money out of the deal as they possibly can because a lot of times these, like I said, you're being squeezed in all different directions and you don't really have a chance to do what you want to do. And for somebody to come out and say that and admit to that is an amazing thing. And uh, so uh, who did you get to be your executive producer? Well, what happens is he, 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 we end up meeting with a couple of people. I didn't like any of them. He sends us a resume of somebody and says, meet with Brad Lockman. Now, I don't know if you know Brad. One of the great legendary producers has done stuff with Elvis and with, with Muhammad Ali. And can, will tell you stories. They're, they're, they're Barry Katz type stories where he goes, <laughs> he goes, oh, so I'm, anyways, I'm in the room. So it's, they're long it's and me, boring and you go to me, sleep. It's me. It's, you know, Muhammad Ali. It's John Wayne. You're like, really, John Wayne? He goes, oh, yeah, let me tell you the story. It's craziness, right? But I look at his resume, and he had one game show. He had a music show many years ago, which was gigantic and huge, but he hadn't done enough stuff. So I said to the guys over at RDF, I said, you know, I don't think this is the right guy. So they called Mike, and they said, look, Jeff doesn't think it's the right guy. And he goes, no, I actually think it is. Let's get a phone call. So it's me on the phone with all the guys at RDF and Chris and everybody and Mike, Darnell. And Mike says, listen, I really think you should – try this guy. And I go, Mike, I got to be honest with you. I read resumes. This is my one shot. I want to make this so great for you. I love you. I love your enthusiasm, but I want to make it great. And it just doesn't seem like this is the right guy. And now, he goes, if I were Mike Darnell, I would have said, look, you know, listen, trust me, just why don't you just do the pilot with him? If you don't like him, we can always change it out. That's afterwards. not Mike Darnell. <laughs> right? Okay. So Mike said to me, Mike said to me, you don't trust me. And I go, no, of course I do. Are you kidding me? I mean, you're the guy. He goes, if I'm the guy, you would truly trust me. And he goes, and if you trust me, you try it with Brad. And I just sighed. And he goes, I tell you what, Jeff, let me make it sweeter for you. If you go and you meet with Brad and you end up picking with him, I'll make, you end up picking Brad, I'll make it six episodes. 
And I go, Mike, I got to be honest. This could be the best resume I've ever seen in my entire life. I love this guy. <laughs> and I went and I met with Brad, and we became fast friends. And he would tell me all these great stories. And we ended up picking Brad. We got six episodes. The first episode. Which, again, before the pilot, you got six episodes, the pilot. which, again, is something that's very, very rare. Yeah. All right. So take me through the uh, casting process. Tell me the list of people. Who was number one on your list to be the host? And where was Wayne Brady on that list? Wayne Brady, I went in pitching Wayne Brady as the host. You did. So I you pitched Wayne pitching. Brady as the host. Wayne Brady decides he doesn't want to do it. We meet with Ellen. We offer Ellen an exorbitant amount of cash. We go over to the Beverly Garland If you Hotel. offered Wayne Brady $100, how much money did you offer Ellen? I can't tell You're you. You're not telling it them was... out the money. I'm just telling you. If you offered Wayne 100 what did you offer Ellen? 100000 Okay? It's like crazy. <laughs> right? Like crazy. Like crazy money to do it. Crazy. Where anybody, anybody in the world would go, <laughs> wait, that's per episode. And you got to remember, when you're doing game shows, you shoot four in a day. So in three days, done. Like so much money, like more money than anybody had ever made. I never heard a quote like that. And at that time, you know... All these guys were making more and more money hosting, and it was crazy, right? So so she gets this offer, and she says to me, look, I got to tell you, Jeff, I love this show. I think it's fantastic, but I've got my show, and this is, like, way too much work. Like, I don't want to – who wants to spend the whole day? Like, I don't need to do this or want to do this, so she decides not to and do And another it. thing you should know if you're a comedian that's, that's, that uh, I'll share with anyone out there who's doing comedy or is bigger in the business is that – if you host a game show, the history of the world in comedy is against you because there's only one person that I know of that has hosted a game show and gone on to book significant acting jobs in television and film. Every other comedian who had any aspirations of being an actor who hosted a game show never booked a significant acting job that was successful again. Only one guy, Jay Moore, hosted a game show called Lip Service, hosted a reality show, which is double uh, as bad, last comic standing, but still people like Clint Eastwood were still giving him roles and he worked with 13 Academy Award-winning actors and actresses. So when you're a comedian like Ellen, no matter how big the offer is, if you have aspirations of being an actor or an actress and you're doing it, you're not – Whoopi Goldberg took $10 million to be the secret the, – the middle square in the Hollywood squares. $10 million. All she did was four or five shows a day on a Monday, and she never booked a significant acting job again of any ilk, and she had won an Academy Award. And now she's hosting The View. Howie Mandel was an actor, started hosting things, has never booked a significant acting job again. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you a great Howie Mandel story really quick. He's a personal friend sure. of mine. So his story on this is he gets the call to do uh, Deal or No Deal. Yes, and he was like number 13 or 17 on the like list. way down the list, yes. right? After Arsenio and all these other people and people had tried out and everything and they decide they want him to do it and they give him a call. And he does not want to do it. He feels like it's just the end of his career if he does that. So his wife says to him, are you kidding me? This is a great opportunity. Why do you not want to do it? He goes, honey, 
are you kidding me? This could end my career. And she goes, what career? <laughs> and he ended up taking it. And the rest is history. And although he hasn't booked movies, he's done pretty well for himself after dealing with Odeo. Oh, it's yeah. Been, no, like, his, his career look, is totally revived look, from Louis that. Look, right? Louis Anderson was acting and everything. He did Family Feud. He made $6 million for Family Feud, and he never booked a significant acting job again. It's yeah. just the way the world works. I don't know why it is, but it's the way it works. So... To get back to the Wayne Brady story, Wayne Brady had passed, and then Ellen passes. And, you know, sometimes your show, you need the right host. You need that right person. I really felt like Wayne was the right person, and so did Mike Darnell. Mike reached back out to Wayne, and Wayne's representative was Stacy Mark. He came down to this— Relationships. Big, he came back down to this big run-through, which I didn't know that Stacy Mark was his agent. I had no idea. They came, they were at the restaurant at the hotel. We had this big room set up and we're ready for them to come in. And they tell me Wayne Brady's in there. So I'm like, okay, let me go in and say hello. I walk inside to say hello and I see Stacy Mark and she looks at me. I hadn't seen her in several years ever since we did the Eddie Griffin thing. And she goes, Jeff? And I go, hey, Stacy, what are you? I go, oh, you represent Wayne? And she goes, yeah, what are you doing? And I go, this is my show. And she goes, you're kidding me. And I said, no, because she only knew me from the Eddie Griffin concert. She doesn't know me from this. And she looked at Wayne. She goes, it's going to be great. You're going to love this. I'm telling you, it's going to be great. And Wayne came in and agreed to do it at that particular run through. And the rest is history. That's how it went down. Relationships, (laughs) trust, (laughs) and safety. Yeah. Amazing. All right. Let's wrap it up with a couple of questions. Uh, I'd love you to tell me your uh, biggest disappointment in show business and your proudest moment? Well, I think my proudest moment, um, my proudest moment was when when Don't Forget the Lyrics was really, really, really a success because it comes out of your brain. And when you're a stand-up comedian and you're doing jokes, it's very immediate. You tell the joke, you get the laugh. You tell the joke, you get the laugh. When it's on television, it's not the same thing. So when you see it go on and then it comes back on the next episode and the ratings are bigger and the critics are talking about it and all of those things and it gives you, you know, I was sleeping on Jimmy Schubert, the comedian's couch, before those things happened. I came here, I went through 350 grand of my own money to build my company, I hadn't sold a show. So I I was really, so when that happened, it became so big for me. I moved my family here, I bought my parents a house, I, I was able to do a lot of those things. So I think still that is my very biggest accomplishment. Without telling you what the show is, my biggest disappointment is I created a show that was stolen from me and went on the air and is on the air to this moment. And in watching that show go on and have the success and knowing that it was mine and knowing that I couldn't do anything about it because you're not going to go sue the big network that's one of the networks that, yeah, you can't do it. But in watching that happen and all of my friends were like, isn't that your show? Isn't that your thing? And your ego and your... It was so brutal and so hard, but I... I decided I wasn't going to go away. You know, in this town, a lot of people come to this town. And if something happens like that, you go away. You go, that's a brutal thing. You get knocked out like that. And it's a lot of money and a lot of ego and a lot of tough times. It's very, very hard. So for me, that was my biggest disappointment. But probably what pushed me into going, I will not stop until I have some level of success um, and keep swinging away. And, you know, 
Right now, I still feel like, you know, I've sold some shows. I've had some successes, you know. Don't forget the lyrics was in 77 countries, right? I mean, like, big, right? You go, but still not anywhere to what the expectations, which was what, how we began at the very beginning of this whole conversation. But things like that, they drive you. So even though it was my biggest disappointment, I think it was also my biggest motivation um, in seeing somebody else have your idea on TV but you reap no reward, you get no credit, there's nothing there, and it just kind of goes away. And so that was really a heartbreaker. And you have to go into that network and pitch more shows every month or two months knowing that what they did to you, but you can't let them know that it got to you. You can't even let them know that you really even know or feel any animosity about it because you can't bring that kind of tension into the room. And the network might not really be a part of that. It might just be the production company. It might be like you don't know where the line is drawn, how it happened. And a lot of times in this town, you know, you go, there's there's similar thinking in certain things, but not in this particular case. It wasn't the case. But, you know, you you have to be able to suck it up and go, I'm not going to point fingers. I'm not going to, but I'm going to like, like if you're a stand up and you get a joke stolen, you go, okay, if I only have so many jokes and one gets stolen, then who knows who did it. But if you keep writing new and you keep coming out with new material, nobody can stop you. So it's so fascinating. You said that I remember when Louis CK accused, uh, Dane cook of taking about 90, 90 seconds of material from him. And I remember calling Louis and I said, Louis, um, you know, if, if if Dane Cook needs uh, your itchy asshole bit to make it in this business, then we're all in trouble. And that's a great motivating factor that happened to you, and it's yeah. a, a very inspirational story. Lastly, what advice do you have for young comedians who are starting somewhere in the world on their path, and and what do they need to do to make their mark in the business, and also... Secondly, what advice do you have for young executives that are starting, that are trying to go through and move the needle in this business, create shows, sell shows, get stuff on the air, knowing what you've gone through? For young comedians, I would say be true to yourself. Do the material that you feel strongly about. Find an angle, a voice, find something and do the hard work. Do not shortcut in any way. It's too easy. Make a job out of it. Work every single day on honing it. Tape yourself. Do all the things that I talked about earlier that I really feel like those are the things that you do and you have to continue to take good and make it great, make great spectacular, and then be able to throw spectacular away. Be able to take your opening bit and your closing bit and be able to throw that away and then make your whole act an opening and closing bit where you're like one chunk after another, it's gush, it's gush, and never, ever, ever rest on your laurels. You go up and that chunk is the greatest chunk ever. You go home and you're thinking at night, how do I make it better? How do I make it funnier? What can I do to make it more animated? How can I put a tag onto it? Get other people around you. Get other comedians to help write stuff for you. Don't think you can do it. Like, have, do all those things, right? For executives trying to make it in this business, what I will tell you is this. I told you before I've never been anything but an executive producer in this town, and everybody makes their own marks. When I came to this town, everybody wanted to tell me the rules of this town. I stuck by none of them. I'm not saying that everybody can do what I did, but what I'm saying is 
everybody can make their own personal mark. But it really does come down to don't think there are any shortcuts. Don't think it's easy. I never look at it like that. What I did was I know what I'm very good at, and I also know where my weaknesses are. And it's more important for me to understand my weaknesses than my strengths because my strengths are easy. So I surround myself with the very best people. You know, I'm a high school dropout, right? So a long time ago, my grandfather told me, he said, if you didn't go to Harvard, then surround yourself with people that did. Not meaning specifically Harvard, but if you don't know something, surround yourself with the very best people. You look at a Super Bowl team and they go to the Super Bowl because they got the best blockers and the best runners and that everybody's got a specific thing. When I go to do a show, I get the best director. I get the best producers. I don't care that everybody's better than me and that everybody has more experience than me because they're going to take me to the end zone, right? So what I would say is, is surround yourself with the best people. Do not shortcut and ultimately build yourself a blueprint for your life. The same as you would do with a house. You say, I'm here. This is where I want to be. What are the things I need to do to get successful? You wouldn't go out and build a house and go, hey, just send some electricians in and stuff. You build an actual blueprint, right? And you do that same thing for your life and for your career. And at least you have a direction of where you're heading. And that could always change. But this way, at least you have it. And that that's the advice I would do. And I would say you should really have an understanding of what you're passionate about and what you really want to do and, and that you're heading in that direction. Because sometimes you go, I really want to be a sports agent. And you get there and you go, this is crazy. What the fuck am I doing? I need to do something else. That's my advice. Fantastic, man. You are incredible. Just incredible. I just, uh, I, I, I think that our audience is going to love what you have to say. And I can honestly say, as we started, you have exceeded all of my expectations. So thank you very thank much you. for Well, you had low expectations for me, Barry. <laughs> hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, was the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. 
along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson. They'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.